0: church any kids uh, who'd like to come and kudos to those parents who are able to get your kids up this early i mean i stand in awe of you uh well, the rest of you open up your uh bibles to luke chapter 20 luke chapter 20 it's on page 1042 if you're using one of those pew bibles page 1042 What a morning we got, huh? This is uh, this is the day the Lord has made. It's awesome. Luke chapter 20, page 1042. Uh, for those of you who are new with us, uh, our church over about the last year and a half has been studying through the Gospel of Luke, like we started in Luke chapter one with the first story, and we've just been reading it story by story. And so now we're getting near the end of it here in Luke chapter 20. And when I was first studying this passage, because I knew this was the one we we're going to be studying on Easter. I first read it and I was like, this isn't an Easter text. I've got to preach on something different. This doesn't fit. And so I was about ready to jettison it and do something else and sort of skip out of Luke. But the more I dug into this text and the more I kind of rummaged around in it, the more I was thinking, holy moly, this is totally an Easter text. And so we're going to see this text, which is all about the identity of Jesus, which is the whole point of Easter. Who is Jesus? So let me just read the passage and then we'll dig in. Verse 41 of Luke chapter 20. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? For over 20 years now, uh, Larry King has been on CNN, interviewing pretty much everybody you can interview. Uh, in his time there, he's interviewed presidents, and he's interviewed athletes and rock stars and celebrities. He's talked to business leaders. He's talked to religious leaders. Uh, he's talked to average people on the street. He's had the average person sitting next to the you know, celebrity talking about issues. Uh, and he was once asked, if you could pick the dream interview and interview any person that you'd want, who would you pick? And, and Larry said, well, the, the dream interview would be if I could talk to God. And someone said, well, that's a good point. And they asked him, well, if you could talk to God, what's the question you'd ask him? Which I kind of found is an interesting question. And before I, I tell you what Larry King said, let me pose the question to you. If you could ask God any question what would you ask him? Maybe you'd ask him, like, are you really there? Uh, Maybe, who knows what you'd ask him. If you could say to God, blah, 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 and a voice from heaven would say back, blah, 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 and you could get the answer, what would you ask God? You know what Larry said? Larry said, I would ask God, do you really have a son? Isn't that interesting? What an interesting question. He's really asking about the identity of Jesus. Is Jesus really... The son of God, because it's Christians who claim that he is the son of God. Because there's so many other questions you might have said. You know, you could have asked Jesus or or God, could you tell us the cure for AIDS? God, how is it that we can bring about world peace? That's a good question to ask God. Wouldn't we want to know? But instead, somehow through all of his interviews and all of his conversations, Larry had come to see that, that at the nub of the issue was really the identity of Christ, which I just find so fascinating because he doesn't profess to be a born-again evangelical whatever. He's just kind of a talk show host guy. But, but he's seen that that really is the issue, and it is. The identity of Jesus is a huge issue, and the way you answer the question about who Jesus was radically shapes your view of the world. It either pushes you in one dramatic direction or it pushes you in another dramatic direction, the, the way you answer that simple question. I mean, think about how the identity of Jesus has divided our world today. Wherever that question comes up, it pushes people in opposite directions. It, it does so on the international level. Uh, you know, one of the things, of course, our country's been wrestling with over the last, you know, five, six years has been, you know, the West versus the Middle East, thing and and we have troops in Iraq and we're trying to help and, and some people say we shouldn't be there some say we should and it's such a complex situation there's all these cultural factors historical factors political factors economic factors but you know underneath it there's another factor which is just religion you have islam and you have christianity and and there's a tension between those that sort of is part of this whole equation and if you get to the root of that difference that seems to be polarizing the world between islam and christianity at the root of that difference is what the question of the identity of jesus because the the fundamental christian uh, the fundamental thing that christians say is jesus is the son of god who is crucified and risen and in islam says no jesus was a prophet He was a great prophet, but he was not crucified, he was not risen. And he wasn't even the greatest prophet. Muhammad was greater than him. And so out of that fundamental question of who is Jesus arises two paths and then it feeds into the whole thing that we're experiencing today. Uh, This question divides churches today. You know, when you look at churches in America, you say, oh, there's all these different d- divided up churches. you got the Methodist Church and the Catholic Church and the Baptist Church and the Presbyterian Church and all these different groups. But, you know, I really don't believe that denominationalism is the fundamental thing that divides churches in America today. In fact, I think that as younger generations are coming, they don't really care. I, I think that the younger generations that are coming up are not brand loyal. They're not into one denomination or another. What really is is dividing churches today is the issue of the identity of Jesus. Is he really the unique Son of God Savior? And is the Bible really his word? You you know, you look at the Episcopal Church uh, today. I'm not picking on Episcopalians because this has happened to Baptists, it's happened to Presbyterians, but Episcopalians have been in the news. And, And that the Episcopal Church in America is being just torn asunder right now and there's dioceses are leaving and joining other dioceses, and it's just a painful thing to watch, and it's gone on in other denominations. And of course, the presenting issue is, is the issue of same-sex marriage. And you say, oh, that's a hot topic. Well, I'll tell you what, that's not the hot topic. That's just the surface issue. The real issue underneath it is, Is Jesus really God's son? Is the Bible really God's word? And do we really go to to Jesus' word in the Bible to define the church? Or is the Bible a culturally relative document that had a historical setting and we can reinterpret it and reapply it today as we see fit? And how that fundamental question of Jesus and his word is interpreted leads to these other issues that that pull the church apart. And that that, uh, question of Jesus' identity even divides families one person in the family believes Jesus is the Son of God. One person doesn't. And even if they don't argue about it, even if they haven't talked about it for a month in their family, it's it's the elephant that's always in the room. And every time one person goes off to church and the other person is staying there at home, it's you know it's a statement without saying anything. And so the identity of Jesus is an enormous issue. And I'm just so fascinated that somehow Larry King, through all of his conversations, put it all together. To come up, and of course that's his genius, is asking that question that gets to the nub of things. Do you really have a son? And so that's what this text is all about. That's what Easter's all about. That's why I said when I first read it, I was thinking, why should I preach on this? This is not an Easter text. But the more I looked at it, I thought, wow, this is all about Easter. Because it's about the identity of Jesus. At the surface, it seems like Jesus is kind of having a, an obscure... Bible interpretation debate, but really he's talking about his identity. So let's just look at the text real quick and then we'll look at the implications of it for us. Verse 41, Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the Son of David? So just historical background. All of the Jews believed, and based on the Old Testament, that when the Messiah came, he would be a descendant of King David. The great King David, who was the man after God's own heart, David who slew Goliath. And so they expected that David's messiah, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And so Jesus says, well, why is it that they think the Christ or the Messiah is going to be the son of David? And it's like, what do you mean, Jesus? Of course he's going to be the son of David. Everybody knows that. That's basic. That's the ABCs. We know he's going to come from King David's lineage. <clears throat> but then Jesus says in verse 42, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this is interesting. Jesus takes a psalm from the Old Testament. It's actually Psalm 110. He takes the first verse and he says, look what King David says. Now this Psalm 110 is a, Uh, It's like a a royal psalm. Some scholars think it's a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that would have been sung when a new king of David was uh, seated on the throne of Israel. But what's interesting, and here's what Jesus is pointing out, is that David is saying about this king, his descendant is going to be seated on the throne, that, that David says, the Lord, referring to God, said to my Lord, referring to the king. And so the question is, why would David call one of his descendants my Lord? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And that's the point in verse 44. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Because remember, in that culture, in that day, the father does not call the son Lord. Right? It's a patriarchal culture. The son calls the father Lord. The ancestors do not honor the descendants. The descendants honor the ancestors. So there's this weird thing where King David is talking about a descendant and he's calling him Lord. Lord. And and we hear that and we go, so do you follow what Jesus is saying? Do you you understand the logic of his question? And like I said, to us it sounds like some obscure 2,000 years ago rabbinical debate. But really it's not. What Jesus is doing is he's simply asking the Larry King question, except in the language of that time. He's asking the question, does God really have a son? Is Jesus really the Son of God? All the people believed Jesus was the Messiah, or they were hoping He might be. That's why they were all listening to Him. But instead of just saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah, He's asking them, do you really know who the Messiah is? Do you think He's merely a descendant of David? Or could it be that the Messiah is someone even greater? That He's even greater than King David? That He's even greater than a mere man? Who is this Messiah? Now what's really interesting uh, is when you go back and look at Psalm 110 itself, the psalm that Jesus is quoting from. It's not just this verse. There's all these verses in Psalm 110 that point to the king being greater than a mere man, being greater than a a mere descendant of David. So I would just want to look at it with you. So if you don't mind putting a bookmark in Luke 20, we'll come back to it. Put a pencil there or something. And let's flip over to Psalm 110. It's on page 603 in those pew Bibles. Psalm 110. And what I want to do, it's a really short psalm. It's like seven verses. It is seven verses. It's its a great little psalm. It's a royal psalm. And I want to go through it and just quickly point out three other places in this psalm where we see that the descendant of David is really going to be greater than David. He's going to be somebody perhaps even greater than a mere human being. So look at Psalm, chapter, uh, psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord... See, we talked about that one. What does he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Think about that. God is saying to this king, I want you, O king, to come up here and sit at my right hand. This is a totally unprecedented statement in the Old Testament. That God would say to a human being, "Be, be at my right hand. You know what the right hand is. I mean, We have that saying in English, right? You're my right hand guy. That means that you're somebody who's close to me. You're you're just like part of me. You're an extension of me. You're most important to me. And so God is saying to this king, I want you to sit on the throne of God next to me. It's a way of saying, it's tantamount to saying, you're going to share in divine authority. You're going to share in the divine identity. So here in Psalm 110, we have a descendant of David who's going to be divine in some sense. Verses two and three, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of your battle, of your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. Then here's the second one that makes him more than a mere man. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now who's Melchizedek? Don't have time to talk about it. I wish I had time to go off like on a total rabbit trail tangent, because that's really interesting, but we'll just try to stay on focus here. This guy's also going to be a priest, which is also strange, because in the Old Testament, kings were kings, priests were priests, and they had different jobs, but they won't do each other's jobs. The king's job was to rule, to reign, to conquer, to wage war, to govern, to judge. The priest's job was to offer sacrifices. The priest was the intermediary between the people and God. He was the one who offered sacrifices for sins. And in the Old Testament, those two did not go together. In fact, there's some stories of when kings try to do priest jobs, it always turned out badly. They always got disciplined by God. It, but here is a king who's not only going to sit at God's right hand, but he's going to be a priest king. He's going to reign and rule and offer sacrifices for sin and bring us back in relationship with God. And then the last thing about this king that makes him greater than King David is he's not just going to rule over Israel. He's going to rule over the whole world. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead. And here we go. Crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And so here's a king who's going to reign over all rulers, who is going to be supreme over all of the nations of the earth and reign over them. And so the question we keep asking is, who is this king? What kind of person is this king? This king is more than a descendant of King David. He's so great that King David sees him and says, you're my lord. <laughs> That's who this king is. Which is an amazing thing. Now this is so important, this Psalm 110, you know, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons I think it's so important is it gets back to the issue of, is Jesus the Son of God? And one of the... the the things you often hear nowadays, uh, you get this in the Da Vinci Code. I don't know if some of you read that book. But it's this kind of theory that this idea of Jesus as the Son of God kind of was created by the church. Right? Do you know this theory? So there was Jesus and he was a rabbi way back when and he tried to reform Judaism. So there was the historical Jesus and then his followers took his name and kind of inflated it a little. And then their followers inflated it. And then their followers inflated it. So that by the time you get to the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon, you know, in the 4th century A.D., Jesus had grown into this huge legend. There's a whole myth that had evolved. You know, you sort of heard this theory. And so by the time we get to the 4th century, they're saying, oh, he's the son of God. He's, he's, an, he's the God-man. But, but, you know, that just evolved mythologically. That's the idea. But one of the problems with that that view, and there are so many problems with that view, I wish I could preach another sermon just on how cockeyed that view is. But one of the problems is Psalm 110. Jesus being the Son of God is a Jewish idea, not a Greek idea that evolved over time. Look what they're saying about him. This is a thousand years before Christ, foreseeing the time when there will be a king who will reign at God's right hand, be the priest who reconciles us to God, and conquer all the nations. How did we get this idea of Jesus as the Son of God? Was it that the church evolved it over time? No, 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 no. This is how it really happened. It's that you had Jesus who was Jewish. His followers were Jewish. And they had the Jewish Bible. And they followed Jesus around for three years and they saw his miracles and they listened to his teaching over and over and over until they had it memorized because he would say the same parables and things in every village. And, And they went to Jerusalem during Holy Week. And they saw him crucified on the cross and buried. And then he rose from the dead and they saw it. And then he ascended to God's right hand. And then they said, Oh, I get it. This is all the stuff we were reading as children in, in, in the schools. Oh, I get it. And so they took out Psalm 110. And they looked at the life of Jesus and they said, There it is. That's it. Remember Psalm 110? Oh yeah, I remember that. How does that go again? And they would think through it and they would say, "Ascended to God's right hand. We saw that happen. He's the priest. Jesus died on the cross, not just as the priest, but as the sacrificial lamb too, for our sins. And Jesus is coming back someday. And so they said, oh, that's it. And so this idea of Jesus as the Son of God it is not a, a creation of later Christians. It's, it's within The Old Testament itself. This is what God has been telling us was going to come. The Son of God. And, and you could go through passage after passage after passage in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, another one maybe you might be familiar with is Isaiah chapter 9. If you, we hear, we say that one at Christmas. It's in Handel's Messiah and all that. Uh, it's the one that says, to us a son is born. Uh, to us a a child has been given. Right? You know that one? And the government will be on his shoulders. And what is his name going to be called? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, what? Well, that's blasphemy. Yeah, if you're a good Jew, you don't call a king God. That's blasphemy. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and and we could again, I could do a whole other sermon <laughs> just on all these Old Testament texts that look forward to a King who's greater than a King, look forward to a descendant of David who's greater than a descendant of David, and so God has been preparing. His people and us for centuries and millennia getting us ready for the coming of Christ. And Psalm 110 is is a for instance of that. So does God have a son? The answer from Jesus and from the Scriptures and from the Old Testament Scriptures is yes. And people, that's where Easter comes in. That's why Easter is so important. Because at Easter, God vindicates the identity of Jesus. You know, anybody can claim to be God's son. You can go to you know, mental institutions, and you will find people there who have delusions all the time. I have delusions about who I think I am, you know, a lot of times. And fortunately, my wife is there. You know, she's my little myth buster. And she uh, <laughs> helps me realize, no, Jeremy, you're not that. You're just this. You know, so so we, we all have delusions of grandeur. We all have various forms of megalomania. And so, you know, maybe Jesus was just kind of like caught up in himself and he started, you know, he just got caught up in all these followers and started to think he was something great. So how do you know? I mean, people, Anyone can claim anything, right? Muhammad claimed that he was in a cave and the angel appeared to him and told him to start Islam. You know, so did it really happen? I don't know. He was alone in the cave. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, said that he got gold plates from the angel Moroni that only he saw. Nobody else saw them. And, and when they asked to see them, he said, well, God said, I can't show them to you. But I will translate them and I will tell you, and I mean, seriously, that's how the Book of Mormon came about. From, from him. And so it's like, well, did you or did you not? Anyone can make claims. And Jesus can claim to be the Messiah. He can say, I'm greater and imply that he's greater than David. But how do you know? That's why the resurrection is so important. Because the resurrection is the vindication of the claims of Christ. That's why we, this is why this is the holiest day in the Christian calendar, is the day Jesus rose. Because if Jesus rose, then he is the Son of God, and it's all true. If he didn't rise, then it's all just malarkey. You know, the Christian faith is it's like a big arch, right? And you know how arches are built. At the top, there's an important stone. It's called the keystone, right? And, and all the weight of the arch pushes upward, and it rests against that keystone. And if you pull that keystone out, the whole arch just goes... Whoa. And so the Christian faith comes up to this arch, and at the keystone of the arch is the resurrection. Because if it's true, then it's all true. And if it's false, then, you know, you, it's, it's all baloney. And you can be a Christian, but then you have to really reinterpret Christianity and make it more new agey or make it more therapeutic or make it more modern or whatever you have to do to try to extract some meaning out of this fallen pile of rubble. And so we proclaim the resurrection of Christ, and there are good reasons for believing that Christ was risen. It was done in public. It was proclaimed among the people who saw it happen. This wasn't like the disciples saying, oh, we had this private experience. They said, well, go look at the tomb. Where do you think he is? You're the ones who put the guards in front of it, and now it's not there. You know, and so people could go over and see the tomb. And and what happened when they preached this message? They got run out of town as, as uh, hucksters? No. 3,000 people believed. How did that happen? In the very town where it all took place. And so there are reasons to believe that the resurrection was credible and public. But ultimately, there's a faith involved. It comes down to a, a question of faith. Do you believe that, the Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God? To say yes takes a step of faith. But you know what? To say no takes a step of faith too. Because you, you can't disprove it either. And so whether you say yes or no, you are taking a faith step. You are a person of faith. That's why some people say, oh, I'm not really into faith. Yeah, you are. Everybody has faith. His question is, what do you have faith in? What is your religious system based upon? And at some point, we all must take a step of faith. And Christ rose from the dead so that our faith would not be based upon some private experience of some religious leader, but it might be based upon the resurrection of God saying, this is my Son and I will raise Him. And so at Easter, we celebrate the supremacy of Jesus. We celebrate that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And as I said, that changes everything. It changes everything. If Jesus is the Son of God, then that means reality has taken on a radically different shape than if He wasn't the Son of God. It's the question that defines everything. And what does that look like in our regular lives? I keep saying that it changes everything. Well, how does that affect us? And I guess, you know, that's what we talk about every Sunday, right? You know, the answer to that question is come back every Sunday. And all we do in, in our church is we just try to read about Jesus and how following him as our Lord changes our lives. And how does that work out Monday through Friday when you go on the job and when you commute and when you have to sit in school with bullies and, you know, everything. How do we, how do we live as Christians in this world? But let me just look at one way, one application, what it means for us that Jesus really is the Supreme Son of God. Let's just go back to Luke chapter 20. Turn back to our original text if you don't mind. And one of the things that Jesus' lordship and supremacy and identity as the Son of God means for us is it means that we have hope. Hope. We have hope for this world. We have hope that God is not finished with this world and that this broken world we live in is not the final word. Look at, again, Luke chapter 20, verse 42. It says, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, here we go, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Because Jesus is sovereign, it means that he is reigning and he is slowly but surely going to bring all of his enemies under his feet. So that isn't that a great image? Just the foot of Jesus on his enemies. <laughs> In fact, if you go uh to look at ancient carvings and steels and inscriptions, this is a common uh picture of, of conquest. You know, go to the, the arts museum or whatever, go to the Babylonian exhibit or the Assyrian exhibit, and you'll see like a, a, a relief carving that they've taken from a dig somewhere and it'll portray a battle and, you know in, in one level will be all the guys in the battle and there will be guys you know shooting arrows and guys fighting and all this and then the next you know be a couple battle ones and then the next one will be the victory and you'll see all these you know dead bodies with arrows sticking in them and it's kind of gross but then there'll be some guys who are captured and you know what they're doing they're laying on their faces and the conquering king is standing over them and he's got his foot on their neck and that's the picture it, it's like in Cops. Do You guys ever watch this show, Cops? <laughs> I'm so lowbrow, I'll tell you. I just, when I see this show, I can't not watch it. I don't know why. I just, I'm like, oh, cops is on. My wife's like, oh. But I, I love it. And, you know, ev- inevitably there's some bad guy who starts pushing back on the cops. And then, like, nine cops jump in. And they're like, oh. And then the cameraman's trying to film it, and the camera's all shaky. And then finally the cops pull back, and there's the bad guy. He's got his hands behind his back. He's handcuffed. You know, sometimes he's hog tied. And he's laying on his stomach, and there's always some cop on him, just with his knee on him. You know, holding him down with one knee. And I'm like, that's the picture. This guy being so defeated that Jesus just has to put his foot on you. You're done. And so Jesus is the conquering king, and he's, he's bringing everything in this world, ultimately, under his sovereignty. See, the hope of Christianity is not just a private little personal religion it's a hope that if Jesus is king, then everything that we see in this world that we just know instinctively is not the way it's supposed to be, will someday be brought under the lordship and supremacy of Christ when he comes again. And so I have hope for the world. When I watch the evening news and all the garbage that goes on, I think there's hope. Because Jesus has risen. I've, besides that, I don't know what the hope is. You know, what, what do you put your hope in? If Jesus is risen, though, if He's putting all His enemies under His feet, that means someday Jesus will put all poverty and disease under His feet. That someday, injustice and war and racism and oppression will grovel in the dust before the Lordship of Jesus. It means someday, even... Jesus' cosmic enemies, the malevolent, intelligent forces of evil that the Bible calls Satan, but that intelligence out there that somehow stands behind human history and energizes it and leads it toward evil, that will be under the feet of Jesus. And ultimately, the final enemy, death, will be under the feet of Jesus, which is why we celebrate His resurrection, which is why as Christians we don't mourn, When a Christian dies, we mourn. But we don't mourn like really mourn because we say Christ is risen. That person will rise. Death will be vanquished. See what I'm saying? If Jesus is the Son of God, this changes everything. It changes everything. Oh yes, and there is one other enemy that Jesus has to subdue. One other important enemy that's going to be put under Jesus' feet one way or another. And the other enemy that Jesus is going to subdue is us. We must be subdued. Because we are the enemies of God. Maybe you're like, Oh, you just lost me, Pastor. <laughs> I was I was down with all that conquering oppression and stuff, but I, I'm not an enemy of God. I, I'm just a regular guy. I'm not God's enemy. Look, we break God's laws. We don't honor God. We look at the world and we look at all the stuff that's going on. You see the Shiites and the Sunnis in Iraq, you know, on the verge of a civil war, killing each other. And we say, what's wrong with those people? I'll tell you what's wrong with those people. It's the same thing is wrong with you and me. We're sinners. And, you know, they're fighting each other there. And, yeah, over here, you know, families don't talk to each other. And we have divorces. And, and businesses break up because people can't get along. And rock bands break up because people can't get along. And, you know, it's the same thing. It's inside of us. You know, evil doesn't come from outer space from aliens beamed in. Evil just is, it's us. We don't even need Satan. He could go on vacation. We'd do just fine. <laughs> we really would. Because it's within us. It, it's in me to resist God. I to go down the Ten Commandments. Bumpity, 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 bump. I've broken them all. Either in actual deed or in the intent and thoughts of my heart, which God says, same diff. <laughs> I've broken them. I am, I, we all have. Uh, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Have I really loved God that way? I don't even think of my best days. Even on the days when I really feel like I'm loving God the way I should, what happens? I start going, look at me. I'm a pretty good Christian. Wow, I really love God. And then pride comes in and it just spoils it. It's like, ah, I'm loving myself all of a sudden because I love God. Or what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. I know I haven't done that. And so I look at my actual track record, candled against the holiness and purity of God. I mean, compared to you, I am really good, actually. But uh, compared to <laughs> compared to God, <laughs> but compared to God, I'm not. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, compared to God, I, I I fall so far short. And so, what do you call somebody? What do you call somebody who consistently breaks the laws of the King? who does not pay honor to the king, who rejects the king you know, systematically and habitually, you call that person a rebel. You call them an enemy. People, we are part of an insurgency against heaven. We are insurgents against heaven. And God is going to put us under His feet. But the good news of Easter is that in mercy and love, God sent His own Son not to put us under His feet but to die on a cross. Or if you want to think about it this way, on the cross, what was happening? What was happening was that instead of me being put under the foot of God, Jesus went on the cross and when He hung His head on the cross, it's like God was putting His foot on Jesus. Which is so ridiculous because He kept all the laws. He's the obedient Son who always glorified God. He never broke the commandments, either in spirit or in deed. And yet He absorbed the punishment that I deserve. He took my place. And so His righteousness comes to me and all of the consequences of my insurgency that I deserve have gone to Jesus. And so the message of Easter is that there is hope. Yes, Jesus will put us all under His feet, but now there's a choice. We can either go to the feet of Jesus willingly or unwillingly. I either kneel at His feet and repent and turn to Him, or someday He's going to put me under His feet. But one day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. The supremacy of Jesus is not in question. What's in question is how I respond to the supremacy of Jesus. And so God calls me today and calls you today to turn away from your life of godlessness and evil and to embrace Christ and to, to put your faith in Him and be saved. And you know, when you do that, it's amazing what Jesus does. Two things. Well, He does a lot of things when you turn to Him. First thing Jesus does, He forgives all your sins. Everything in your life that you have done and even will do that's repugnant to God, Jesus washes it away all the things I've said that have hurt people, all the times I have, uh, and and you have done things that have hurt our children, the decisions in our life that have broken relationships, um, all the things that have gone on and lurked inside of our hearts, our divorces, uh, the way we've hurt our children, the abortion, forgiven. And God says, I love you. I forgive you. I, and he kisses us and he embraces us and welcomes us to himself. But he doesn't just forgive us. It's not like just the past is gone. But then he starts to change us. And and this is the weird thing about being a Christian is the Holy Spirit comes into your life and he starts messing with your life. And at first you find it irritating, but then you realize, wow, God God really loves me so much that he's not just going to forgive me and leave me. He wants to change me too. And so he, he begins the process, I, I guess you could call it, Sanctification is the process of God sticking His foot into your life. Not to judge you, but to crush the sin in your life. And so, God's going to stick His foot in my life one way or another. He's either going to do it at the judgment day in judgment, or now if I come to Christ, He begins to put His foot in and He puts His foot on my temper, or He puts His foot on my pride, or He puts His foot on whatever, and He begins to crush the, the junk in my life that has separated me from God. Oh, it's such a wonderful thing. And so what's Christianity? It's not just saying a creed, although as Christians we believe certain things, but to be a Christian is not just to come to church and say a creed. It's to know the power of Christ transforming and forgiving you. You know, people, that's why I became a Christian. I, didn't, I, was, a, I was like almost a teenager when I became a Christian. And it wasn't because somebody came to me with a bunch of logical arguments about why the resurrection is true even though i believe those arguments now that i've studied them they make a lot of sense that's not why i became a christian i was just a teenager I, I was just like you know i was into video games and riding my bike and eating pizza i mean that was my world but what happened was jesus came into my world and i met jesus and i wasn't looking for him but he was looking for me and maybe he's looking for you See, what, what makes me a Christian is that Christ has met me and Christ has forgiven me and changed me. And, and that's the essence of Christianity, is a living relationship with the living Christ. The living Christ. And so is Jesus the Son of God? Does God have a Son? I'll tell you what, we don't need to make our TiVos tape every episode of Larry King hoping there might be an interview with God to answer that question. All we have to do is open our Bibles and open our hearts to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love You. We worship You. There's never been anyone like You and there never will be again. Lord, we've been let down by everybody. We've been let down by parents. We've been let down by government leaders. We've been let down by pastors and priests and ministers. Lord, we've been let down especially by ourselves. We thank you, Jesus, that we've never been let down by you. You perfectly obeyed the Father. You perfectly did his will. And so through your death and resurrection, there is now hope for enemies like us. And Lord Jesus, we want to come now and, and kneel at your foot kneel at your feet and worship you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for anybody here who really is searching, who really is asking the question, are you the Son of God? First of all, Jesus, I pray that we would ask that question. That we wouldn't just glibly go along our way, but that we would stop and wrestle with this most important of questions. And then, Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself to each person so it wouldn't be based upon the arguments or sermon of some preacher, but that you, Lord Jesus, would show yourself and so that we could say, I've met Christ and that we'd put our faith in You, and that You would begin that process of putting Your foot in our lives. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here who do know You, that You would continue to be faithful to us, and keep sticking Your foot into our lives. Keep putting Your foot on all those things that are displeasing to You. Lord, we want to, as Christians, be surrendered to the living, supreme Christ, because we love You. And so, Lord Jesus, we worship You today, we glorify You, and we thank You that Your kingdom is going to come. Your will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we look forward to that day. We pray this in Your name. Amen. Take your order of service and let's sing a final Easter hymn, Thine is the Glory. Would you stand and let's sing together. For those of you who are members of the church, uh, just a reminder that tomorrow night is our special business meeting to uh, vote on the acquisition of a piece of land. And for those of you who knew Peggy Carlson uh, has been in our church many years. Uh, her memorial service will be Thursday at 10.30 here at the church. So we hope that you can come for that. And if you like prayer after the service, our prayer team is here. Uh, they'd love to pray with you. they are just a couple of people who have been praying the whole time we've been in here. And they'd love to pray about anything going on in your life, if there's something that we could stand with you. And now let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray send us out full of joy, full of hope, full of confidence in Your supremacy and glory, Jesus. And we pray that we would show forth the love of Jesus in our lives. That we would be humble, gracious, and kind in everything that we do. Lord, help us to love You with our whole hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves. And that as people see the genuine spirituality and holiness of our lives, that that might preach the gospel before we ever open our mouths this week. And so, Lord Jesus, reign supreme. Rule over the south shore of Boston. Rule over our church. Rule over our lives. We pray this all in Your name. And all God's people said, Amen.